And a one, and a two, and a three, four, five. Hello, we are live on the House of Strauss. A little inconveniently timed to happen concurrently with a Warriors game. I do think that I have, I don't know, some Warriors fans who might be interested in the other takes. But hey, we can't hold the takes. We can't prevent the takes from happening at this very moment. Because we are joined by, or with, Ryan Glass-Spiegel of the New York Post. And Ryan, I feel like you've got takes throughout the week. When we do this show on a Thursday later in the week, I mean, are you just, are you pulsating with takes? Are you overflowing with takes? Are you oversaturated? My my takes usually don't make it in the paper. Mm. Due to, uh, due to the beat that you're on typically. Well, I mean, first of all, due to the beat that I'm on in the sense that really I just cover um sports and entertainment but really it has to do with sports and we can go into like other topics like what we're gonna do with uh cnn and jeff zucker today but um also i'm like a reporter not a columnist and they've got a delineation between them so sometimes i can sneak a stray opinion in there but Mm. um, usually i deal with empirical facts in my work I gotcha. You're a little bit distant in my ears. I don't know if that's a me thing or if other people are picking up uh, on that. Let me turn my Bluetooth off and maybe that'll fix it. Yeah, it's that damn that damn Bluetooth technology. It usually gets me. I mean, look, I'll tell you what perspective I'm coming from on all of uh, on on tonight. I feel like you've got your pulsating with takes. I feel like I'm marinating in controversy. I'm gonna have something on the Leia Thomas situation and ESPN and all that likely coming out tomorrow that just seems like a touchy fraught topic um i might be on a a podcast tomorrow where i'm asked about fraught topics i'm talking about stan van gundy versus joe rogan i know how people on nba twitter might regard some of my opinions ryan i just feel like i'm a bad man i'm a bad (laughs) man and i need to be uh, sent to my room that's how i feel right now uh well are you at liberty to say what podcast you're going on? Um, I I think I'm at liberty to say it just because it, it raises the hackles. It raises the hackles to go on it. Uh, the Megan Kelly podcast tomorrow. But I would, I that's think, what I was going to guess, actually. I don't think she is hosting. I think it might be a substitute host tomorrow, oh. um, which it's funny. It, you, people get mad at you just for doing it. I, I was on it a few months back, and I, I would almost – dare anybody who is mad at me to just listen to it because I don't think there was anything objectionable in there, but it's just the idea that you're talking to the wrong people. Now, to be completely frank about it, I do think that before her podcast became a radio show, it seemed more nonpartisan. There's something about it becoming this radio show that's going out live versus the podcast format um, that I think ratchets up a, a bit of the partisanship. And I could even feel in the interview, and it was it was a good interview. I really liked it. But she sometimes is kind of veering it back to the partisan uh, angle a little bit. And, it, you know, Biden would, would kind of – it would be redirected towards Biden. I can kind of feel that pull. Yeah, I can understand how that's what uh, she would do. Like, I mean, she – it is podcasts and radio are different audiences. Like I know that they get blended together because every radio show becomes a podcast. And now in the case of Kelly, they're doing it in the reverse direction. 
but um, they are really two different mediums. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I have to say, I mean, maybe I won't be invited back after saying it. I liked the podcast version of what she was doing before. And I know to a lot of people, she's just the same Satan, uh, actually an NBA Twitter world. But there was a distinction. I think she was a little more nonpartisan. Uh, the, the guest list seemed a little bit more across the spectrum. And I liked that. I mean, credit, hey, credit to her. I'm sure she's having a lot of success and she's doing whatever she wants to do. But that was a format that at least for my taste, I preferred. She did have uh, Brianna Gray, who worked on the uh, Sanders campaign on recently. I've been like meaning to listen to that, and I haven't yet. But I, I'm, I, I would go on Tucker Carlson. Like, instead of like people think you're Satan for going on like Megyn Kelly, mm. I would go way further. I would go on cool. any show like that would invite me that I can speak to an audience. I don't believe in this idea of shunning people for bad thoughts as I've spoken about a million times. I, that's not even to say that like make, I even think like necessarily in, in the broader sense that Megan Kelly and Tucker Carlson have bad thoughts. I've definitely found certain topics that I agree with them on. Uh, I mean, I would go on MSNBC, I'd go on CNN, I'd go on Fox News. I don't, I can't think of like anybody that exists that I know of that has like a real platform that I wouldn't go on their show. Yeah. Um, I think sometimes people make the calculation based on what friends they're going to lose because people take that stuff seriously. I know people in journalism who have lost friends for questioning uh, with it, whatever they thought the consensus was. I was just at a dinner last night with a few of those people. One of them Tell actually... them they should go work at OutKick and see what happens then. <laughs> These were not sports people, though. These were uh, fancy... You know, this was... God, I can't reveal the people I was with, but uh, one of them turned to me, actually, and asked me if I had been canceled. And I started rambling, and like, I don't think so. I mean, like, some people get mad at me. There's this this player, uh, this basketball player called Kevin Durant, who got really mad at me, and he just sort of interjected, oh, you know, you know, you know if it happened to you. So I guess I haven't been. You haven't been canceled, <laughs> I can tell you that. I suppose I have not been. I have been asked to do Fox News primetime multiple times i have turned it down it just seemed like too much of a thing seemed like too much of a thing going down to the studio having that short time frame but hey it's kind of like how michael jordan ryan would say that i i'm i'm never saying never about coming back you know <laughs> that's for me I to still, decide for what are my like randomest takes i still feel like jordan could play like 12 minutes in the a game in the nba like post 50 and like be like a relatively formidable bench contributor. Mm. I mean, I hey, the league needs some juice. Although, <laughs> although Ryan, I don't know if we're going to talk about this. I feel like the numbers are juice. They said that that uh, Warriors Nets game last weekend got uh, over three million viewers, the most in three years. The numbers from the NFL are crazy. It does seem like they just changed the metrics and called it growth, as though you start wearing shoes when you measure your height and you say that you're growing. It's been a boon to the broadcasters. I mean, they they, they got to take what they can get, though. I mm -hmm. I don't blame them for touting it, but yes, anything that is compared to before 
the fall of 2020, as we've talked about before, is not an apples to apples comparison because they now count out of home viewership in the initial number. And so it, it really live sports should benefit from that more than anything because people watch it in bars, hotels, restaurants, at friends' houses, and on and on down the line. And so we had these historical benchmarks that are nebulously contextualized now. Do you think the NFL cares after this grand, incredible run of playoff games? Not the optimal Super Bowl matchup, but whatever. You're building the the, the Burrow legend. Uh, do you think they care about all this bad press over the Brian Flores and how that's dominating as opposed to Super Bowl talk? Or do they go, who cares? We're bulletproof. King Kong's got nothing on us. Uh, whatever. Well, Roger Goodell cares deeply about this. I mean, you can see from all of the league's centralized messaging. I mean, PFT commenter had like a really funny joke when the news broke. Now for the Super Bowl, ESPN is going to have to up the font of their end racism painting (laughs) in the end zone. (laughs) Um, But it, it is, they definitely care about it. And it's one of those things where it's like 32 individual, well, 31 individual Maverick billionaires plus the Packers who have a team president. And then the league, like Goodell, they're all Goodell's collective bosses, but he can, you know, put together uh, factions or whatever of owners and, you know, alliances and stuff like that and run the league how he sees fit. And that's how he was able to at various times challenge Robert Kraft and Jerry Jones, who were the two most powerful owners, or at least two of the three or four with the Giants and the Steelers ownership groups. And so Goodell definitely cares deeply about this. He tried to arrange a tryout for Colin Kaepernick to get back in the league a couple Mm. years ago. And Kaepernick, for whatever reason, didn't like the parameters and tried to move it at the 11th hour or whatever. But Goodell really did like want to try to get him back in the league. And so, and and like that the league has, has uh, donated to a bunch of like social justice reforms and pretty large sums of money. And you could say that they're, basically a printing press for money. But if you look at the totals of what they've donated, um, it has been at least like an outward priority for them. But there's nothing the league office can do to prevent these billionaires from hiring the guy they want. And so they care about it um, deeply. Now, is it going to impact their business Probably not, unless this lawsuit somehow, like, I, I don't know what amount of damages it could even earn that would dent them, but... Yeah, there's something, there's, there's a lot going on, and I don't even know how to summarize it. I, you know, just look it up, folks, if you don't know about the... Uh, the this, this is one I don't think we have to summarize. <laughs> no, but... everybody, yeah, this is, although I wonder what the normie is thinking. I wonder if they're going, hey, where's the Super Bowl talk? I, I don't care about the demography of, of coach hirings, but 
the thing is, the, the people on, I guess we'll just broadly say the left and the right of this issue. It's the easiest way to organize it. Uh, the people to the left of the issue, they aren't on to nothing when they say that the NFL is fraudulent on this. When the NFL is preaching about how much they care about diversity and all this stuff, it is meaningless. And racism, that's a meaningless statement. What the hell is that? What day is that going to happen? That's never going to happen. That's a ridiculous thing. I mean, mitigate racism. I mean, they're okay. Now you're talking, but end? That's insane. So they are hoisted on their own petard if they are engaging in this discourse, like you're saying, and donating to these organizations. Fundamentally, they can't walk the walk of it in part because they care too much about the specific hires that they're making and they believe whatever they believe about the people they're hiring and they don't want to sacrifice anything uh, to the idea of seeming more equitable. So they are trapped in their own web of signaling, it seems. Yeah, and so it's like, it's weird because Byron Leftwich maybe could have gotten the Jags job, but he didn't want to work with the incumbent general manager, Trent Baalke, who you're familiar with from San Francisco, who has gotten in, you know, number of power struggles over the years. And uh, the, the one that's like really weird is Eric Bieniemy. Like you would think he would have gotten a job by now. And so I, Nobody is saying this out loud, and I don't think I agree with the rationale for why he hasn't gotten a job, but I do think that it needs to be, like, discussed as a potential reason is that he had a number of um, arrests and other incidents as, like, a like college player and early in his playing career. So, I mean, like, this, like... TJ Simers is a guy who used to be on Around the Horn. Um, like, if you look it up, for, in, like, 1991, he wrote an extensive piece on um, Biennemi's, like, rap sheet as he was, like, entering, I think, the Chargers as a player or whatever. And, like, mm. he eventually became an assistant at UCLA, and the UCLA paper went through, like, his whole rap sheet of like things he's done. Now, he I I believe he got kicked out of Colorado as a player for striking like a woman crossing guard or traffic cop or something. Mm-hmm. And he had like a number of traffic violations and then other things that he said were like misunderstandings. He got in a barroom brawl over um an alleged like racial slur. So it was long enough ago and I'm somebody who believes in reformation that um, I don't think that that's something that should be keeping him from getting a job. But I also believe that it's gotta be a factor. Yeah. And the enemy, he's the offensive coordinator of the chiefs, uh, which it seems like I wait, I'm right on that. That's correct. Yeah. I didn't yeah, just, yes. yeah. Okay, great. You can tell I'm a huge football fan. Um, so yeah, so he's the offensive coordinator of the Chiefs. It seems like that's the pipeline as I've been reading up on it, that it's the offensive coordinators and that's why he would be the likely guy. And yeah, maybe there's something behind the scenes and that's part of why he hasn't, uh, ultimately gotten that mantle. The other thing too, if you're, if you're coming at it from the lefty side, 
it is weird. It is weird that there's only one black coach in the NFL. And, uh, you know, we can, we can file it under weird. A lot of people would file it under a lot worse than just saying weird. And I understand that the pipeline isn't necessarily the players. I think it was only one coach uh, got drafted to the NFL among coaches who made the playoffs, and, and Kingsbury didn't really even play. Um, you know, I that's not a stat I read somewhere. I was just looking at the teams and just looking at the biographies. So uh, it's not necessarily the pipeline, but still, it is weird. You know, that is a weird outcome, and it's just one that it, it's fascinating because nobody can defend it in the aggregate um, given the current taboos, uh, but yet every individual decision, I'm sure these teams would uh, give an explanation for why they did what they did. Well, yeah, I mean, you look who got got jobs. Like Doug Peterson just got hired as the Jaguars coach. He's a Super Bowl champion. Brian Dable got hired by the Giants. He, um, like you know, people are like, oh, well, he had Josh Allen. But if you go and read the pre-draft evaluations of Josh Allen, this was not a guy who was seen as a sure thing by any stretch of the imagination. So working with him and developing him as into being one of the four or five best quarterbacks in the league qualifies as a big accomplishment. Kevin O'Connell gets uh, the Vikings job. The other coaches who have worked under Sean McVay, which are Matt LaFleur and Zach Taylor, have been enormously successful. And so there are lots of these that you can defend on the individual merits. But um, nonetheless, in the aggregate, it's relatively insane given – how many black people are involved with football at all levels that there's only one of them left as a head coach. Yeah, it's a clusterfuck. Um, I do agree. I do agree with this. I largely want the following. I would like to see both sides represented in debates in media. That is what I would want to see. I'm not saying that's what's good for your ratings or it's even possible at many of these organizations without a walkout happening. But when your old boss, Clay Travis, says nobody on ESPN is going to take up the opinion uh, that this Flores suit is ridiculous and that there isn't racism in hiring and that these teams just want to win, um, unless I miss something, he's probably correct about that. And I would prefer to, I would prefer to just see people have it out and actually have the conversation and, and have the debate for everybody. I actually, that's funny that you mentioned this. I had a thread with uh, Tony Reale and then Aaron Solomon, who is the uh, producer of Around the Horn yesterday. And it was there was like a conservative, probably outkick reader in my mentions really going back and forth with Reale. And so I pointed it out and said, there's an interesting discussion coming on here. Uh, Solomon responded that... Um, the it's not really much of a conversation. I, I responded to him, uh, well, I, I do think that ESPN could be more representative of conservative viewpoints. Like I, there should be center-right panelists on Around the Horn. When, when Will Kane left ESPN, Dan Levitard, really, he did a segment saying that it was sad because they lost the only person at their network who can argue the other side well. And mm. so 
then reality asked who should go on around the horn, and I named you, and I named Matt Barry and Steve <laughs> Steele. Um, I'm a conservative pundit now. That's it's happened. Apparently, I said center right, but like, if, I mean, if they put Sage Steele on around the horn, and she was allowed to argue her true feelings to the fullest, I think we might <laughs> see like Sarah Spain have an aneurysm live in front oh, of half man. a million people on TV. Yeah. I know, I know Sarah Spain did not like the Nike's End of Men article I wrote, and uh, there were many subtweets, or, or so I saw. But you were saying. <laughs> they, um, so then he asked for people outside of ESPN. I named some, who well, I'm not even sure of some of their politics, but think people that I think would be like interesting on the show. But in any event, it, it's weird to me that um, I'm get like I get in these like conversations with these people who are really like you know household names. Like Tony Reale has been on TV in bars and restaurants and households for the last twenty plus years, and so I bet you like his Q score is through the roof. And yeah. I I I don't understand why these people um, interact with me, but it's like been a weird position. Oh, that I've been in like, the media, New York post reporter. Why you know, <laughs> acting like you are a, like you're an urchin, you know, it's, um, but I think that the fact that they do address some of it on the Twitter, I do think there's a sense of vulnerability and yes, it's the conservative side of an issue, but sometimes it's just normal people. Like, what's the normal person opinion? I don't see a lot of normal person opinions sometimes when I watch those shows. On no, they they've they've yeah. really stacked around the horn with Ivy League people. Yes, yes, and I love I love Pablo. You know, you know, I don't want to I don't want to cast aside Ivy League people, but it just seems like yeah, you, you could have some balance. Maybe I, that's a great way to put it. I hadn't even thought about that. That around the horn became so Ivy League. and Well, it would yeah, be... Pablo, Mina, um, June Lee are Ivy League. I don't think Malika, Malika has – Malika Andrews, I don't know if she goes on around the horn or not, but she has an Ivy League grad degree, I believe. Um, mm. But they, they have a lot of – a lot of the young people that they've elevated have Ivy League degrees. Yeah. Um, it is the mismatch. I've talked about it often. I think this is why sports is such, I, I feel like it's underexamined in the broader cultural, uh, culture war, because unlike if we're talking about NPR or if we're talking about New York times, right? We say, Hey, they don't have a lot of diversity of opinion. Hey, they represent one side. Well, their customers also kind of might want that too or at least a lot of them do. What's different with ESPN is that their customers are conservative. That's what's different. That's what's crazy. I mean, not all of them, right? But if we're if I have to choose, like if you pick me out, pick me out a daily ESPN watcher at random, and I know the demographic cues of looking at the research that they are four times as likely to be male as female, that they are going to be 10 years older than the median age of the population, that 75% of them own their home. These are all, this is from the research data, right? You know, they haven't surveyed them on their politics, right? But this is, these are the cues that I'm getting. Um, And I have to choose, like, I have to pick, gun to my head, who does this randomly selected person who did they vote for i'm gonna say trump and that is well, the especially the game viewer especially the football game viewers yeah yeah well i'm going off the daily espn viewers 
Um, and so, you know, theoretically they're watching these shows, right? I mean, if, yes. if, if you're filling out the every day, so that's the, that's the crazy chasm. It's the chasm that your former boss, Clay Travis has made millions of dollars off of. Uh, but, but they, they kind yeah. of, what they do is they say that, um, they just write off those people kind of like Justin Trudeau wrote off the the truckers as like racist sexist transphobic etc and so like they're like they they basically they say if you have this intolerant view that's not good faith it's bad faith and we're not going to air that for the pretenses of um airing both sides and so It's, you know, it's a really tricky spot because I don't, I think that there are normal people who are not like racist and bigoted who don't agree with the axis of like New Yorker, New York Times, Washington Post, Atlantic, Vox, Slate, NPR, MSNBC, etc. And so it, they, it's a it's a weird sleight of hand where they dismiss probably forty to fifty percent of the country's ideology and just convince themselves that it's okay to be intolerant of intolerance or something. Yeah, the uh, the popper is the philosopher I think who uh, said you have to be intolerant of uh, intolerance and. Part of the issue that's squeezing them right now, as I have said, is that we are watching something of a preference cascade out there where people's political affiliations are shifting right, at least if the Gallup polling is to be believed, um, and maybe in a way that's unprecedented. So you're having to play the game now of not just saying that 40 percent is beyond the pale, but now it might be 50, 55. I mean, it's, it gets more and more difficult to play this game as people's uh, preferences shift. And the reason that's happening, I mean, there are many reasons for why that's happening um, out there in the world. But that is the, the biggest one thing. is gas prices because they, they wanted to really – sorry to interrupt, but they no, like no, no. Biden wanted to push make a big push for – electric vehicles and they they stopped a bunch of like the domestic drilling that we were doing and so gas prices go up which affects people twice it affects you at the pump and it makes the cost of everything else go up because it's a big input cost in the distribution of almost every product and so the um then the inflation kind of between the printing of the money that they did to get us um, to keep us afloat during the pandemic. And then the gas prices causing everything else's price to rise. It's like cause a big pinch on a lot of people's like household budgets. And so people feel poorer now than they did two years ago. And then they think, Oh, what changed the president? Yeah. And I think, I think that's true. Nate Silver was saying that there was this promise of the Biden campaign of returning everything to normal, and that has not happened. Uh, mostly in the bastions of Biden's support, ironically, um, ha- has gotten to the least amount of normalcy. And that's something that definitely I feel in my life. And we can maybe even talk about that 
because I wrote about Stan Van Gundy. I didn't really write about Stan Van Gundy. I, I kind of used him as an avatar. Um, oh, we have Scott in the queue. By the way, anybody can jump into the queue. You know what? Before I, before I detour into SVG land, I, I, Scott's just been such a great uh, question asker. He's always doing double duty, at least in my mind, because he's got the, <laughs> the kid on his shoulder in the Avi. Let's call Scott up to the stage. I want to see what he has to say. Scott, you hey, there? Guys. Hey, 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 Ryan! Congrats on ten thousand on Twitter. I, oh, uh, I feel like you. you guys have to do your Memphis trip do uh, for the inevitable <laughs> Warriors Grizzlies second round matchup. You oh, should, that's a good uh, one. Film an episode from there too. Ooh, ooh. I'm in. <laughs> um, We're but, both yeah. young dads, just like yourself, and so. I, I I'm hoping I'm in, but <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I'm in. Oh I'm in, and that's a lie. But you were saying, Scott. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I know how that goes. My friends are like, oh, trip in two months. My high school buddies, and yeah, not not able to get that on the books yet with the baby. But um, yeah, I guess I I was actually going to go into a bit of Stan Van Gundy land. Uh, nice. About to segue let's, into there. No, let's do it. Um, okay. Yeah, like I, I I feel like I've been digesting a lot of the kind of media paternalism ideas you brought up in a few separate articles. And I thought this one brought it home pretty well. Um, so I like, personally, I went to a small hoity-toity private high school in Berkeley. Uh, I was actually a year below Isaac Chotner, knew him well. Um, oh. But yeah. I like uh, was best friends with his stepsister. Uh, his I, his Isaac dad wrote me. It, no, I don't want to interrupt. Tell me uh, about it. Tell me about Isaac's dad. Oh, yeah. So he was, well, he, like, I don't know if you, uh, random family guy reference, like the super cool, like, uh, science teacher that everyone loved. Like, he was like that, uh, guy that just, like, everyone loved him. He was a history teacher, mm-hmm. like, brought everything to life. Like, I, I will interrupt for, for those who don't know, yeah. Isaac Chotner, the premier interviewer at The New Yorker, who often somehow induces people into humiliating themselves in entertaining ways. But you were saying, <laughs> yeah. yeah, he was. Yeah, Isaac was awesome. He was he was one of those kids by every, you know, normal metric, he was not cool, but he just had this air about him, like all the advanced metrics. You're like, you just know that he was uh he was a cool kid. Like uh but anyways, I, I ran I ran into him at the coffee shop, by the way, about oh, nice. a month well, ago. I, that's what I was gonna say is that your coffee shop of all the boomer doomers there It's the same coffee shop, by the way. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so weird. Uh, so yeah, so like those are, so you know, growing up there, those are all my friends' parents who like were that age, uh, going like, you know, a little bit of guilt, I think, sending their kids to like expensive private school, yet they're like the very Berkeley type boomer doomers. Um, so like growing up around that, I think, yeah, I've just been trying to digest it. And like, I think there's like the whole Stan Van Gundy, like what he's, preaching now and i don't think it comes from like a bad place but i feel like there's a few elements like one i think people that age are a little worried about potentially getting canceled just because yeah i think just being around like my my dad like they just say things where if you're not like it's nothing bad but just if you said it like it was normal to say it 10 years ago but if you said it now in an office setting like you would like get flagged by HR and you're going to lose your cush, like 300 K your job and you're, you know, 62 and you don't want to get canned and lose out on your livelihood. So I think there's some element of fear there. Um, but I, I also wonder if it's like looking back, like I think about 
like my dad's age. He was born in 1946. Like, you know, he was not that young growing up in the civil rights movement. And like, you saw a lot of really awful stuff. Like his family is from Alabama. And like, I wonder if there's like a little bit of trying to reconcile like all that Mm. stuff they saw. And is there this kind of, I don't know if it's guilt or they're aging, like sensing their own mortality, trying to digest it. Like, I, I don't exactly know, but like, I never saw anything true. I, I think that but, the people that are their age that are on the other side are just as like angry and scapegoating about the left as these people are about the right. But yeah. That, um, Ethan just doesn't see them in a, in a no. North California coffee <laughs> they, shop. They're not at the coffee shop. Yeah. No, they're not. I wonder about them. I think about them sometimes. Like, what is that like out there? You know, out, out, out in the, out in the hinterlands. Um, <laughs> you know, what are those, what I are mean, those they're, places They're like? mad about what Tucker Carlson or Clay Travis tell them to be mad about. Yeah. Well, uh, Shane Gillis has a funny routine called Fox News Dad, and it's this hilarious retelling of in the pandemic being at his uh, family's home and just watching his father watch Fox News throughout the day. And there's something almost universal in it, even though it's specific to the uh, to the Fox News. And for whatever reason, people of a certain age, a lot of them get really addicted to cable news. And it is a broad phenomenon that's not specific to one or the other. Yeah, well, yeah, they, it's, it's funny because, like, the people in the coffee shop are mad about, you know, anti-vaxxers in Arkansas or whatever, you know, people who yeah. they're never going to come in contact with. And then the people in the diner in Arkansas are up in arms over, like, bad prosecutors in New York and Chicago. And so <laughs> like have no impact on them. They're just so angry that you're screwing up your own situation. That's, that's, that's such a great insight that both sides are angry at what, at, at, at the way that the other is shooting themselves in the foot and nobody's really looking around and seeing what's going on on the ground level where they live. It's insane. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah it's hard you know to what you're saying scott i'm just trying to reconcile it all it, it is it is very difficult to reconcile it all i think with stan van gundy it's a bit of a problem and this is a difficult one um on the one hand i want everybody to speak uh for the most part theoretically right um and i'm not into canceling people or firing people obviously but there's part of me that watches you know i i would just i keep saying the same thing if i'm adam silver I'm like, I'm just calling Stan up and I'm saying one tweet a day. It, it can't be, it can't be 40. You, you just want, <laughs> we're not, we're, we're not muzzling you. You know, you can say, like, really think about it. Think about that one thing you want to say that. How day. about four or five? <laughs> yeah, four or five. He tweets a lot. And the issue is when you go from the territory of criticizing a politician to criticizing people, I think that's when it gets offensive to people, and rightfully so, because he's attacking you. If you are a listener of Joe Rogan, he's implicitly calling you uh, like a mouth-breathing idiot. And if you don't want your kid to wear a mask, then he's basically saying suck it up and kind of uh, just, just you know, in the it's it, you think fuck you when you read stuff like that. Yeah. Well, his kids good. are what thirty years old. Like they're not, you know, 
five-year-olds yeah. at kindergarten. But and and um, by the way, I, I cited a tweet of his a while ago on the mass thing, but he tweets about it all the time. And then you know, I turn on the TV and I'm just looking at Stan Van Gundy surrounded by a just a sea of masked individuals, and I, I see his mustache and his smiling face and. <laughs> Hey, I don't want to be mean about it. He's not the healthiest man in the world as he gives everybody else this advice. I'm just saying, you're really annoying, at least me. I don't know if it's broadly felt. I don't know how many people actually care what Stan has to say and if it impacts their love of the NBA. But I know if I was, it would be a conversation if I was the commissioner is all I'm saying. Yeah, I agree. Where do you think things go from here? Like, because like with the Stan Van Gundy thing, I just get this like, kind of gross feeling of the how do you do fellow kids see Buscemi <laughs> from 30 Rock meme. Like, uh, like kids don't want to, like, you know, Facebook stocks off 26% today. Like, mm. kids don't want to do what the older generation's doing. And now that they're kind of glomming on to this approach, like, do you think there's some shift from the younger generation? Because I feel like there's... The, there's the older well, there, generation... There came out um, this week that said that um, Tucker Carlson is beating, like, CNN and MSNBC in viewership from 25- to 54-year-old Democrats. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. The, the older generation, by imitating the younger generation's uh, speech on social consciousness, has made it cringe. And that is maybe what's happening. I mean, I'm only half kidding. There is something bizarre about the average Rogan listener being 24 years old and all these publications and cable news shows being terrified of their young Jacobins tailoring their programming towards that sensibility of the youth and not having any young people watching or reading. It's, it's a crazy paradox that we're living in, in media right now. Yeah, I agree. I think there's like a, I think there's this, thirst for authenticity too where yeah i think there's still a big chunk of people who log on to twitter because they want to see what everyone's thinking what they should say so they can kind of recycle it get internet points for it but then like i feel like there's this desire for i'm, I'm not saying joe rogan's like authentic but at least and there's a lot of you know semi stuff that can go on there I but he's, he's like I think he's, he's looking him. for yeah yeah he's looking for he's trying to find out for himself he's not he doesn't have a narrative he's trying to push or an agenda and it's like i think people appreciate that like mike pesca i think has a lot of that like you know on the fifth column like i think like i yeah i see that kind of stuff out where i know i'm not like people aren't trying to push this preset agenda well it's just mike yeah. pesca yeah recorded a podcast with him should be coming out should be good oh, i nice. might pay, i might paywall it I've got another podcast this week, too, that would be free. But now I'm just talking about housekeeping. Scott, thanks so much. Uh, I think we'll – well, okay. So here's how I want to organize it. Um, Ryan, you got to get your – you got some sort of crazy CNN theory that I don't even understand uh, that, that you need to explain to the people. And then we can take more questions and move it along because you got that, you know, not an East Coast bedtime, but a later bedtime. Yeah, I got to get my CNN theory out. So um, I think, so basically Warner Media, which is CNN, Turner Sports, and HBO, is getting sold from AT&T to Discovery, and that's going to close in the coming weeks or months. And I believe, so this guy, John Malone, 
is the biggest shareholder of Discovery. He built TCI Cable, which eventually sold to AT&T. Like, probably half of the people listening right now had TCI Cable in the 90s. Um, he, he kind of, like, just uh, accumulated all these local monopolies and really dominated that industry. And now he he's the biggest shareholder of Charter, He's the biggest shareholder of Discovery, and he's the biggest shareholder of Liberty Media, which owns uh, Formula One, Sirius XM, and the Atlanta Braves. And in November, he did an interview with David Faber of CNBC. And you have to remember that CNN, um, for people of a certain age, was like revered as an empirical news source. And so- Up until like 9-11 or so, CNN was really like the gold standard of reporting. And it it had to pivot to what it is now because first the Fox News um, siphoned a bunch of their viewers and then MSNBC siphoned a bunch of their viewers. And they were left with kind of like being this like boring in the middle thing. And they had to pick a side, so to speak. But Malone in that interview with David Faber... Um, in November, he praised like Brett Baer from Fox News as like being a good, solid information reporter and really sighed at what CNN has become. And you got to remember that CNN was a big part of the cable bundle that he was a pioneer in selling. And he owned a bunch of all of these cable networks. I'm not sure exactly which ones, but I believe he owned parts of like MTV, QVC, I think even CNN. And so he's basically said, I'd like to see CNN become more meat and potato news. And at that moment, Mm. I was like, okay, Jeff Zucker is not long for CNN. But there was a little bit of, it wasn't as simple as he could just fire him because the guy, David Zaslav, that runs Discovery on the ground is like a longtime close friend of Zucker. So I just knew though, that when Malone says that he's going to do something, he does it. And I figured Mm. that by the midterm election season, CNN would look dramatically different than it did this past November. And so, you know, the, the thing that Zucker resigned over, which was like a consensual affair, with um, the PR and marketing chief, it's it's bad in the era of Me Too, but he could have survived it if Malone and Zaslav wanted him to survive it. But I don't think they wanted to be seen as the people who pushed him out. Now, it would be like technically illegal for them to be calling shots over a company they're acquiring that they haven't acquired yet. But there are ways for them to get their messages across. And I believe that this was honestly their long-term call. Yeah, you hide whatever you want to do within the taboos of the age. And it's not completely the same, but a little similar to the Rachel Nichols situation, where I think people upstairs were disenchanted with her. And that informed pushing her out once there was this controversy. In this case, though, it's different because you have the conspiracy theory that in some ways the controversy is engineered, right? Well, the other thing is, is this controversy came 
from Chris Cuomo and his lawyer. Like Cuomo yeah. was irate that they wouldn't pay out his full deal. And so he hired this like mudslinging Hollywood lawyer that um, planted the news of this affair with like the people who were investigating what went wrong with him at CNN. And so they basically just like planted this stink bomb and there's stories that are out there and like Puck and the Wall Street Journal of Jake Tapper asking the CEO of Warner Media, this guy named Jason Kalar, who famously like had been feuding with Zucker for two years, like, hey, aren't we just letting like Chris Cuomo win by having his um, desired outcome come true? And like Kalar wouldn't answer questions about it. But it, I, so there, there's like all these elements to it. And on the ground, what happened was you had somebody who ran, ran the company and wanted to be rid of him anyway. You had a scandal that happened on his watch and the person scorned in the scandal, taking everybody down with him. You have an acquiring company that wants to pivot the direction because, frankly, like CNN's ratings have been like cut in half since Trump. They've been and bad. It, it, it's, a, it's not like very good television. Dude, they're yet. having nights where the top show is getting 700,000 people watching. It, it's incredible how much it's fallen apart. Yeah, so it, it's like it's performing poorly. And so at, we're seeing all these like accounts from people who work at CNN. How could we ever endure without him? And it's like your ship has been sinking for a year and a half. I don't know what planet you live on. Like you, you can't, you can't have declines like this and have leadership survive intact from, um, several major scandals. But, uh, I, I just knew three months ago when I saw that interview with Malone and I have a tweet thread, like every time CNN did something cringe, I was like, this is going to change. Um, and I knew that Zucker wasn't going to be long for that job. So however, like the mechanics of how it happened, it was an inevitability that he was going to be out and we're going to see a much different CNN six months from now. Well, I think we got to get in on this, Ryan. I mean, if anybody's listening, I mean, I think Ryan and I, we wouldn't necessarily fit on Fox News. I think we're maybe a little too centristy. Maybe this is what you got to go with. You know, maybe this is what we're going to be doing because there's the grand if, reshuffle. If they, want, if they want to hire us to give our takes on the media, I'm all in. Although I don't know, you typecast me now. You you've cast me into a lot of uh, conservative pundits. Maybe that's something that the people can answer. Whether that's the case, you know, I might have to find a, a bow tie or whatever they were wearing back in the day. <laughs> um, <laughs> we should take a question from Yu Yang and anybody else who wants to ask questions. Let's make let's make Yu Yang the next caller. Yu Yang, are you oh, ready? Man. Yeah, I'm ready. Oh my god! Quickly, I apologize. You know, it was, no, it was no, quick... never. Now, never apologize. Uh, thank you for letting me on your show so many times. And if, if you guys actually had a show on ESPN, the Ryan, Ethan, or Ethan or Ryan show, it would get more than 700,000 ratings. I guarantee oh, you. Yeah. Cause, cause I don't know about watch. that. We, I don't think what <laughs> takes on, like, if the Warriors will win would be that compelling. I'm calling it now. If we get the CNN show, though, I, we're cracking 700. I'm calling it. Yeah, I think we could. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because because you know what? Because people actually tune into that don't watch CNN like myself. Like I, I, I'm not a conservative. I'm not a, I'm not a liberal. 
But I will watch, like, even like Ben Shapiro. Like, I don't agree with like 90% of things he says. But if he had a show on CNN, I will watch it, you know? Um, but yeah. I actually, I, I want to get to my... He says things that we disagree with, interestingly. Yeah. That's and right. also, really, yeah. He's also somebody where if I want to get a sense of what the modal kind of younger Republican is thinking, especially around election time, I, for a podcast, there's I, that's the one you would listen to to get a sense of, okay, what is the standard bearer of that particular movement? And I think there's just a utility in that. And, you know, he likes to argue and talk quickly. And I think that we can right. come up with other criticisms of him. He's not exactly the most empathetic person in the world. <laughs> uh, that's for sure. Um, but yeah, you know, yeah, do you have a, yeah. do you have no, a question I, though, sir? I, I, I do, I do have a question too. And I know it's almost midnight there in the East coast. So, uh, I'll try to be concise. It, it's kind of has to do with, uh, something you said about the NBA ratings, Ethan. And I just want to kind of let hear, mm. you know, your, uh, you and, uh, Ryan's take on it, you know, even briefly, I think you said that like, yeah. um, this is just me paraphrasing that like, like, it's obvious to you that the NBA has in a sense turned its back on Republican kind of, uh, you know, the, the, that demographic, you know, who are conservative and, uh, and as a result, yeah. they've lost a lot of, and that's, and you say like so obvious. Right. And then I hear you on podcasts saying, you know, there was one famous one, I forget which one from last year, but it was, you know, there was arguing with you that it's not that obvious. And you're like, no, it is obvious. And that kind of back and forth. Oh, I think you it was that, uh, Josh yeah. Levine at, at Slate. Yes, 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 yes. It was a great podcast. And I, I, I was so frustrated on your behalf because I was like, do you not hear what you said? <laughs> but, um, but, so well, said, my, my yeah. contention was I have a fairly easy theory of the case. And yeah. they insist that it can't be true. And I go, well, why can't it be? And there's exactly. really no response as far as I can see. But yeah. Right, 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 right. But go, go on that kind of uh, obvious kind of like, you know, logic, right? I think there's another obvious point that I don't know if anybody's talked about or maybe I just have, have, haven't seen it hurt or that it's so obvious that it's kind of like looking in, like, looking in the sun. Like if you look in the sun, you can get blinded. So you just don't talk about it. It's so obvious. Mm. So the, the other obvious thing that I think is that why, why can't we just say that football is just a better sport than basketball? Like, just more entertaining to watch. It is right, like, it is right now. You know? It is and it's right like now. The, I, I agree. And, like, because, like, the NBA, right? Like, I've been watching NBA since the 80s, and I'm just done with the mandatory timeouts. I cannot stand it. Mm-hmm. It's so frustrating. Like, every time it gets to the six-minute mark, three-minute mark, there's a, there's a timeout. And they make no sense, you know? Whereas in the NFL, even though okay. they have tons of timeouts, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm jumping in with my take on go, this. Go for, um, go for, go right for. now, the, the NFL is a better product than the NBA right now. I mean, it's hard to watch that that playoffs and come away with any other conclusion. Just the production, the drama, the feeling of stakes. The NBA doesn't have that right now. Now, if we're talking about sports, though, I don't know if I can say that football is better than basketball. <laughs> I don't know if I could say that. I think of that... Course. You know, if you go to a preseason football game, there are a few things more boring than that, in my opinion. Um, right. <laughs> if you go to a preseason basketball game, yeah, it's watchable. It's cool yes. to see guys just do what they can do. And so I think without the stakes and without the fewer games and everything else, I, I think I would even argue that basketball is a better sport, like a better true, platonic true. ideal of a sport than uh football is but with having way too many games with having guys kind of bounce around from team to team with whatever has happened to it it just feels like something's been taken from it and it's been mismanaged 
And as a product, it's a worse product. I, I want Ryan's take on that, though. And thank uh, you. Thank it, you. It does feel like a worse product. You know what? It, you know what started it, um, Ethan, was Greg Popovich resting his starters yes. all the time. Yes. Um, yeah. That was the beginning of the deterioration of regular season basketball. And so it, it just became a point where if you guys are telling us that the regular season doesn't matter, then we're going to believe you. And yep, uh, it, it, it's, you know, you can go through how much people do actually play or whatever, but you can just tell that they're not playing this sport at a full gear. And you can't say that about regular season football. Now, maybe it's because of the scarcity and how much um, time, how many, how few games there are, but even with baseball, like it doesn't seem like they're not trying in the regular season in the same way that you get that impression in the NBA. And I don't know how they put that toothpaste back in the tube. Yeah. I think it's really hard to do it. I think they, they need to cut, the games and have them on a regular schedule and use some of the ideas that we're using that they're not willing to do. But yes, that was, that was the beginning. Um, and the issue is that, yeah, you say, okay, well, the regular season not to watched or paid attention to, but they'll come back in the playoffs. But the more people you get in the regular season, the more people you'll get in the playoffs. Typically you've gotten more people following all these different teams journeys. There's an investment. They know who the guys are when the postseason rolls around. If people are checked out during the regular season, then that's just not going to happen. They're not going to come around come postseason time. So yeah, they need to make the regular season matter. I think that's a huge aspect of what, of what they need to do to get this thing back in the uh, in in the right direction, but it's just one of those, you know. When I talk not- about it, um, here's what's weird about it, Ryan, because I, I try not to talk about it too often because it's almost this cliche thing that I talk about. What's annoying to me is how nobody else talks about it. Well, in the industry, in the NBA, and nobody was talking about it as this huge collapse in in interest happened. And the weirdest thing about nobody talking about it is that it is a topic that's interesting. All these people have all these different opinions about it. You can argue about it for hours. I I told you what the watershed moment would be privately. I guess I'll say it publicly. You know what the NBA needs is they're kicking the ass. Well, I want to go on one more non sequitur about the the resting. So another Mm. thing that really affects the NBA's brand. You see these tweets of someone from San Antonio spent 1400 bucks for his son and him to have good seats for Warriors Spurs. And then for the second time in however many years, Steph Curry sits out the game. Like how many times has that happened with customers who spend a ton of money for these opposing players and then have them rest? It's got to be in the tens of thousands. And mm. so that eventually starts to compound on their brand. But, um, I, you know what needs the NBA needs Bill Simmons like for his fingers to start working, bang out like a twenty thousand word piece that's written, not a podcast, not him like talking mm. about it with Zach Lowe or House, like twenty thousand words on the ringer of him clinically diagnosing everything that um, he believes that the NBA could do to fix their product. Because I think that that would make everybody stop 
and collectively listen. And I bet you he was doing that in that era of the early 2000s when um, yes. the game had slowed down and become like this hunkering, like, you know, he, big Simmons used to sport. say, what did he say? He said he was one of the only NBA fans on earth or something like that. Yeah. There was a joke about how unpopular the league was at that time and how cognizant he was of it. If he came out and wrote like something that would take you 40 minutes to read, um, everyone would stop what they're doing that day. Everyone in like the sports world would stop what they're doing and read it. And it would become a real kind of signal that the complacency of like, okay, we just have to get through the pandemic um, and everything will be fine. You know, football is already past that in a way that basketball is not. And they have to figure out a way to make these games feel meaningful again. And I don't know exactly how they do it, but they have to at least admit that it's a problem first. Yeah, I think so. But the pandemic fog is still something they're contending with. It's so hard when you've got these people uh, not wanting to show up to the arenas and uh, in part, but all these the football stadiums are full. All these college basketball stadiums are full. Watch like a big 12, big 10 sec, ACC basketball game. Like one night. And I know that the basketball isn't as good, but the fan environment is so much more vibrant. And so I therefore reject the hypothesis that they couldn't mm. do that with better basketball. I, I agree. I just it almost seems like there's this fog or this film that's over everything and that the pandemic is now part of that. And it's an intimate sport. But I agree with you. I love the take about the necessity of a Bill Simmons column, massive Bill Simmons column to save the NBA. You could call us both romantics for thinking this needs to happen or that it, I swear it very would have cool. a big impact. I swear I, it would. I can't swear that he would ever do it. Like that his fingers would work again. My fingers, they don't work anymore. But if they worked (laughs) and he did that, it would have a big impact. Oh, I bet Joe has a take on this. I know Joe has been down in New Zealand. You know, it's funny. We say down under for Australia. What do we even say for New Zealand? Are they not down under? You know, where would they be? We don't identify as down under, um, (laughs) but we are further south, I guess. I I don't know. Anything really to distinguish us from those uh, those prisoners? Um, <laughs> just, just, I think. Oh, I think. You know, I just wanted to give a little rejoinder to what Yu Yang said. And look, if Ethan was an NFL journalist, I can guarantee you there would not be anybody from New Zealand calling in to his show. And and that tells <laughs> you something about that tells you something about basketball, right? It's the only American sport that matters globally. It's the only one. And it's because there's an inherent, um, there's just an inherent beauty to the game that just doesn't, like, every game has beauty, but, man, it's superior. Brian Windhorst uh, has this thing you would often used to say on his podcast, is like, the game always wins out, or something to that effect. Mm. And it's true. Like, basketball is the best game on earth. And despite the NBA's flaws, I think we've always got to remember that. Like, the game, the game can carry it. The game can I, carry it. I agree. Uh, the platonic ideal of basketball, in my opinion, is better than the platonic ideal of football. But football 
is so much more expertly packaged uh, than basketball is currently. And culturally more relevant for whatever reason, you know, that, that matters. But that cultural relevancy hasn't quite translated to the rest of the world. In, in, the, in the way that basketball has been. That's a probably a big reason why Americans love it, is that yeah. it's a majority American-played sport. Um, we, we haven't even really talked about that, but I think if you, if you want to like look at how much attention that football has siphoned from basketball and baseball and even hockey since the 1990s, one of the queer variables is that baseball and basketball have become much more international in their player base and football remains almost entirely American players. Yeah. Yeah. We're, uh, we are nativists out here or whatever you want to call it. I mean, I think there's just a barrier of entry with uh, American football. that's difficult. I remember I was in Israel and I was talking to uh, an Israeli soldier and he was asking about American football. He didn't even know, the very basics of what happens, which forced me to have to explain it. And as I started to explain it, I realized that I had absorbed this all from an early age, like the language acquisition phase. And I literally just could not translate it to him um, and explain what the hell it's like you get, there's a, you know, they, they kick the ball to you and then you go forward maybe like 20 yards or something. And then you've got to like, once you get into it, you realize it's, it's just inscrutable without a lot of repetition. And that's one of the reasons I think it doesn't cross borders as well. That's a good point. Yeah, so, I think Madden really helps. Like Madden hmm. was, for me, how I kind of learned the rules of, of football. And, and you know, I enjoyed it a little bit, but it's still not the same. Um, I think one of the things that the NFL and football has going for it, like if you were to engineer a sport to, um, to be perfect for TV producers i think that would be it it's so that the, the rhythm of it um mm. just lends itself to frequent stoppages um and it lends itself to analysis you know because there's sort of you know each player is so discreet it's this really discreet event you know so i think that probably helps with the packaging of it in a way that you kind of can't do with basketball because it just happens too fast um and and you're on to the next play um but yeah that's it um I can be an NBA declinist and an NBA optimist at the same time because I'm a, I'm a basketball I'm a basketball optimist. You, you I think know that's what, where you we know are. What the basketball optimists need to hope for is that what? John Morant leg yes. legs stay intact. He, because, he's the most important yeah. player in the league right now. Um, you know, not now. It doesn't feel like he is because he's not a household name. But he's the most important player for the future of basketball, at least in the United States. Joe, thanks so much. Uh, Ryan, eventually we got to get you out of here, but I know JF is calling in. I've got the energy. Okay, okay. Well, JF is calling in. I don't know what he's going to ask. I know he's Uh, Canadian. We we still have to talk about the WNBA story, like after the callers. We have to get to that. Okay, okay. So let's think. Okay, here's what we'll do. Here's what we'll do. I'm organizing it right here on the fly. We'll talk WNBA situation. Then we'll take the question from JF. Because I know you've got some sort of Canadian trucker take, and we're going to shoot. I want to do that too, so I'm down. Yeah, um, poor JF. He might have no 
concern for that conversation. But, you know, hey, I'm just free associated. He's from the country. So that's that's what's going to happen. But the WNBA situation, uh, this is where I'm going to force you to do some expository because I stopped following. I saw, okay, I'll do the first expository. You'll do the, the, the second right. part. So Becky Hammond gets hired from the Spurs to be the head coach of the Las Vegas Aces in the WNBA, making a million dollars a year. Liz Cambage, very outspoken, I would say very unlikable, though nobody in that industry criticizes, uh, kind of attacks her broadsides uh, with the tweet. A lot of people are saying that really it's a criticism that the WNBA pays the players so little because the top players make like $200,000 a year um, versus... Yeah, the whole salary cap is like $1.3 million. Yeah, wow. Um, So that happens, and you are telling me, Ryan, because I've not followed the next step in this saga, but there's a next step in this saga. Yeah, we've got Holly Rowe um, ripping Liz Cambage for... Um, ripping Becky Hammond. <laughs> um, oh no! Oh no! Okay, I got it. Um, nice. Okay, so let me find Holly Rose quote. So first of all, Cam Beige's quote. Ah, yes, the WNBA. Well, can you tell people who Holly Rowe is? So people might want to know who Holly Rowe. I'll, is. I'll explain that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, ah, yes, the WNBA, where a head coach can get paid four times the highest paid player's supermax contract, and y'all think I'm going to spend another season upgrading my seat on a flight to get games out of my, uh to get to games out of my own pocket? Honestly, it's a relatively like legitimate criticism these players should be getting paid more in relatively short order because the league just got a 75 million dollar equity investment from like a bunch of brands who want to be associated with it you can see a world where the WNBA expands from like 12 teams to maybe doubling in the next 10 years and the owners are going to extract a ton of um expansion franchise fees out of that and so I actually think Liz Cambage has a point, but um, so Holly Rowe says Becky Hammond spent 15 years. Holly Rowe is an ESPN sideline reporter. She's been there an extraordinarily long time, maybe almost longer than almost anybody in the company at this point with how much turnover they've had. Mm -hmm. So she says on NBA Today, um, Becky Hammond spent 15 years in the WNBA as an undrafted player made her way, became one of the greatest of all time. She earned every penny she's about to get paid because of her lifetime work in the WNBA, and players like Liz Cambage got paid more because of some of the work Becky Hammond did. So Mm -hmm. let's celebrate a woman getting a million-dollar contract in the league instead of women tearing each other down. Mm. Um, Yeah, it's just... I'm trying to even think of how to approach this one. Yeah, there's Cam more Beige. though. So you think yeah. about it. Well, well, because she piles on later. Mm-hmm. Um, she goes. I've actually heard that Las Vegas was not going to resign her, and so that might be where some of this anger is coming about. That this yeah. really rubbed me the wrong way. 
put some respect on Becky Hammond's name. Becky <laughs> Hammond played in the WNBA for 15 years and the work she did getting paid a lot less than Liz Cambage or what has made your contracts possible. So Becky Hammond has earned every dollar that she makes in this contract. And I think it's important to know the history of the league and the players who helped build it. Wow. That is a, that is a felt take. Now, Cambage, I guess that's the proper way to pronounce it. I don't I have I no think idea. So I looked it up. I like watched the YouTube highlight of her to see what the announcer pronounced so I can get it right. Well, she's probably gonna yell at us if we get it wrong just based on how she goes about things. Hey, she might have some great points, but what's always so annoying about her and so many people in the current age, it's me, 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 me. It's not looking at this situation from the perspective of the league or uh, I want to get other people paid. It's I have to do this. I have to do that. Not going to do that anymore. It's that kind of tone that I just find obnoxious regardless of what Becky Hammond has done. But the, yeah, the WNBA, their, their point, and I used to work for the WNBA out of college uh, when I was in NBA PR. Uh, they're just such a strange organization because they are a subsidiary uh, of the NBA, maybe not in technicality, but they are. All their sponsors, or a lot of their sponsors, are just NBA sponsors that pretend to have a deal with the WNBA for the sake of making the league look good. So they've resorted often to just guilting people and to trying to pay attention. And I, I can understand feeling like Hammond is getting this contract and isn't worth more than all these other coaches, but. God, who even, I don't know. That's it. This is the WNBA's problem in general is that this is almost the only sort of news they produce. Is- well, I didn't realize that players were this low paid. And I do, I'm, I'm very bullish on women's sports, but especially the WNBA in terms uh, of. Guy has a daughter and suddenly bullish on women's sports. Sorry, continue. You two were daughters. Saying, two daughters. Well, there you go. Um, it, it, nevertheless. The, um, I, I think that the um the the quality of play is like really gone up. I went to like a Chicago Sky WNBA Finals game. I'm not gonna claim I like worship their whole collection, you know, or like watch every game or anything. But if you like, if you watch some of these like women's Final Four games in college, like the talent level and the quality of play has just gone up dramatically yeah. over the last ten well, or twenty when, years. When, Women's Final Four is just, in some ways, again, it's about the packaging of it. It's a better packaged product than the WNBA product, which is almost trying to be a lot like the NBA. And you wonder if they should have just gone with something totally different because they're not going to beat the NBA, obviously, on a skill level or dunk. So you need to use your comparative advantage and maybe have a more exciting structure to the season i know they have a shorter season than the nba season but yeah i don't know this is what we do in this podcast we just become commissioners for every sport this is how we do it <laughs> uh, but, but it's kind of astounding that brianna stewart is only making 228 grand a year like they should be making more than that because of what i said where there's only 12 teams in the wnba and like they there are lots of huge cities in america that don't have a franchise and they're going to be rich people who want to buy into this league. And so uh, like, I, I really see a world where this, the, there's like double the amount of franchises 10 years from now. 
Yeah, and some of those finals games get in the millions of people range. It is amazing that they are paid like, uh, you know, a modestly paid lawyer uh, at the very top of the profession. I mean, it is it is kind of astounding. And, and I they, um, like the the there's just there's going to be like enough talent to fill double the amount of teams. Um, so we're bullish on the WNBA, it seems. I am, I am. I've been, I have been for about a year. But oh. okay, um, let's take this call. Yeah, let's take this call from JF out of Canada. Have no idea what he's got for us, and we're gonna force yeah. him to talk about the trucker situation. Bro. Yes, no, I'm happy to talk about the trucker situation. I actually used to live in Ottawa, and I used to be able from my condo, I could see the Peace Tower. Uh, so if I was still living there, I'd be able to hear the honks uh, that are going on all through the night. Um, but it, but I have to address one thing. Like last call uh, that you had with Amin, I just went mm. on and jumped off. Uh, his rebuttal to my points, and I think to Joe, I don't know if Joe's still here too. They were all like really flawed and, and factual. Like uh, I was talking about the difference between or the difference of the NFL and the NBA getting drawing in the casual viewer and the amount of kind of uh, team changes um, between those leagues are impacting, you know, kind of its appeal to the casual fan. And he brought mm. up, Oh, there's actually more transactions with the NFL. That is completely absurd. It's, you know, maybe true on, you know, absolute volume, but not relative to like the players we know and household names. It's yeah, it was an absurd. And then he mentioned about, um, you know, winning, mm was really important and that's what all the fans cared about. And then you push back on the Steph Curry um, example of the game, which is totally absurd. Like no way the Warriors fan base would want to trade Steph Curry for another title. Right. Yeah. I, I think he was being too absolute. I mean, obviously I, I said what I said. I, I, I believe what I believe on it. Um, I mean, he was making the claim that fans are just going to roll with anything as long as the winning happens, but no, some winning, not all winning is created equal. Yeah, There's exactly. The, correct. <laughs> and, and I mean, like look at the Lakers win, right. With LeBron. I think, you know, that didn't resonate with probably Lakers fans. You I know, mean, there are also probably, no fans at the games, but you're, even if they're, were I agree with you like yeah. the, the Kobe winning a title you know with Powell probably was worth you know so much like it, X amount more than LeBron and AD winning a title even though yes. it was at a season right it's, it's like you know and I think that's kind of marks the problem with the NBA that it's so insular within its own environment that it can't criticize its own self about what it's mm actual problem is so they can't correct anything if they're not actually talking about it um and you know it, it's just like you know it baffles me and i think joe was right about saying um kd joining the warriors was you know a major kind of pivot in the league as well which he said no 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 like you know by the numbers super teams are really good for uh you know, sports leagues. But I think that is true within kind of the silo of that team, like the general yeah. of interest. But as for like kind of the macro, it doesn't like, you know, the rest, like the rest of the league was very obviously like, this is stupid. Like you took out all kind of imagination. It, it was of- too much. It was too decadent. And for some reason it was too decadent and it didn't have the novelty of LeBron go into Miami where they were oh. the bad guys and everybody was mad at them. And it was interesting. It, and it felt like when KD did it with the Warriors, it was even more decadent and not as interesting because we'd seen stuff like it happen before. 
Absolutely. And I think it really, the rest of the fan base knew, like, you know, the next two or three seasons were done, right? Like, you know, you adding KD to that team was just absolutely ridiculous, too decadent. And maybe it was, it brought a lot of interest to that team and maybe for the league for certain points, but overall it was a negative impact. And, you know, it ties back directly to uh, kind of the, the LeBron influence. There's no way he's joined the Warriors if LeBron didn't leave a 66-1 team in Cleveland to join a super team in Miami. And he wouldn't join the Warriors if he didn't leave a team that went to four straight finals in Miami to go back to Cleveland, right? Like, that just yeah. wouldn't happen. Yeah, well, like, I mean, so here's the thing. The Bengals are in the Super Bowl, and they were like 100-1 to 1 before the season to win the Super Bowl. There's just no conceivable world in the NBA yes. where that happens. Absolutely. No, no. And I think that brings a lot of intention and like casuals into kind of the interest of the NFL, right? And if you look at spectrum of fandom from like the diehard to the very casual, uh, you know, the NBA with its kind of how it operates with the transaction game gets a lot of engagement from the diehards, uh, you know, which they conflate as, you know, popularity, whereas the NFL is just much more... Uh, kind of a broad spectrum of, you know, reaching over to the very casual to get them in interested into those games, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know if I want to throw my buddy Amin under the bus, but I do think that your generalized critique that the NBA's insularity prevents it from seeing itself, and it would actually benefit. God, you're a man after my heart, JF, that they would benefit from hearing my criticisms as opposed to just, you know putting their hands over their ears. There's I, nothing I would we would like more than for the NBA to be, to regain the half of the popularity that it lost because it would be great for the engagement on our work. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I, I totally agree. I'm 100%. And like, I have a lot of theory. I have one big theory on this and uh, Ryan, you're like a great person to talk to because you actually mentioned this on a previous one of these call-ins, which you brought up Jason Whitlock because I think he's a very interesting character in kind of the scheme of how sports media has changed over the past decade. Like I, mm. you know, I followed him early, like basically from the page two ESPN days when he was on PTI, like when PTI was at its peak of its relevancy, Jason was well, one of the primary co-hosts filling. Yeah. Him and, and Levitard. Yeah, yeah. And like, you know, and now he's like totally toxic and like, you know, they won't even touch him. And I don't think he's changed that much. Like I was following him on Twitter, like what are 10 years ago. And, you know, he hasn't really changed too much from like 10 years ago. Like he was writing changed in his topic selection. And I mean, you, he was, he was comparing LeBron James to Muhammad Ali when the heat wore the hoodies for Trayvon Martin. And so, I mean, he, he has, He has changed, but I think that, like, the world has also just gotten really crazy and polarized. And I don't think that he—I believe he's 100% sincere. So he has changed, but he's changed in a way that is not inauthentic. But I would say, like, he would write articles maybe, like, 10 years ago about, like, Alan Iverson— you know, being associated with kind of, you know, the gang affiliation and that being kind of negative uh, to himself and, you know, kind of black culture, right? He's very, you know, into, you know, we need to fix black culture. And I think 10 years ago, I think there was more of an audience to hear that or accept that. Well, he was a guest host weekly on Lebitard, you know, which is sort of crazy to think about. You think that can't even happen, that he was a weekly 
a weekly guest host. I'd love to hear those two talk now. Yeah, I really would. I would love it. I would. I would. Totally want to hear that. Like you know, Jamarcus Russell was you know quarterback in Oakland. I think he criticized him for kind of the same things. And if he were to do that, like you know, that was he was very mainstream when he was doing that. And same with the AI criticism. But now, like he'd be tossed out like immediately if he were to make the same criticisms today if he did 10 years ago which like i said he was still getting co-hosts at the probably the most uh popular and relevant sports talk show uh pti like it was just it's just crazy how yes of course the overton window has shrunk from like 10 years from now but i think the media uh the sports media rather um over to window, his trunk, you know, went from oh, yeah. like crazy wide to like crazy narrow. Yeah, I, people here. people are very intolerant of hearing a deferring view that makes them uncomfortable. It's it's really sad. And and speaking of that, Justin Trudeau. No, I I want to add yeah. one thing. I, I had the segue right there, but yeah, Whitlock may or may not have like reached out. Uh, I think after I wrote the LeBron LeBron's failed advertising campaign article to ask if I would do his show. I, I said yes. Nothing came of it, but I knew he in got doing COVID, that. So he was he was out. Okay. Well yeah, maybe that's that's that I, I don't know. But it's like I knew it's like I, I said yes because just as a moral I I do view it as as just a little bit like a moral stance that I'm not going to reject doing a show on the basis of how peers and friends react to it. I don't want to do it for that reason. We I'm should get my... him to come on next week. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's not go crazy now. I'm not going to reject, but seek it out. But I, but I know that he's so toxified, which makes me intrigued because I like taboo to a degree, but like, I know he's so toxified that I just know that if I do that show, it's just going to be, it's going to be a whole thing, but yeah. I'll still do it. You know, I'll still do it. You'll you'll get like ad hominem attacks, right? Without actually, yeah. you know, uh, hearing what you're saying on that show or what he's saying. Uh, but to that Trudeau uh, trucker, uh, rally, yeah. What what's your take on it? Give your whole take. So, so first, I I just logged into this because I came back from a uh, illegal pickup basketball game. Uh-huh. Uh, we had we we had 13 guys show up, and we were only supposed to have 10, right? So technically, like we were breaking uh, these stupid COVID protocols. And like we went to our, you know, pro- this private bar that, uh, you know, is still at 50% capacity. So after the two games that we've had, we like we canceled most of the games in January. We had two the last two weeks and half the locker room afterwards were talking like, you know, about this protest. Half of them were with them and ha- were all vaxxed. You know, half of them were with them. Half of them were like saying, oh, these guys are racist. They were just buying the kind of media narrative right about them that was being created around them mm-hmm. and i you know you know and i was surprised that there was half that actually said actually they're really searching for these people that have you know kind of these extreme views and they're really highlighting in the media they're not actually showing uh you know what this protest is actually about so yeah. i was actually yeah it's not getting debated on the merits at all no it's and i i want to just interject with it i i am far from an expert on the truckers uh, swarming into uh, Ottawa, Ottawa, however you pronounce Ottawa. the capital city, Ottawa, however you pronounce the capital city of Canada. And I think it was Liz Cambage. It's the, I think the last name is God. I, I, I am a mess with the pronunciations today. I am far from an expert on it. 
Um, but it, it is frustrating because I follow Bruce Arthur on Twitter and I do think he's done good sports journalism, but he's all in, it seems, on uh, COVID hawkishness. And I just feel like when I follow him and I follow his reporting, I'm not getting any other perspective. And there's this sense of, okay, there seems to be a lot of upset towards the government on this. It seems like people do feel constrained in their civil liberties. And can there be some sort of hearing for that? Can there be, you can still on balance say, Hey, I, I am against what these guys are doing, or there's some elements I don't like, but there's just this total inability to even admit that a reasonable person might have a different perspective that I find frustrating. Absolutely. And I think that is actually growing across Canada right now. And uh, just, from the beginning of this convoy, uh, there's already been announced two provinces are getting rid of their COVID restrictions, which, uh, you know, a week ago would have been, you know, crazy to hear. And yeah. the biggest province, the one I'm in Ontario, they they are saying they're reassessing the VAX passport, um, the value of it within the uh, within the province, which, you know, is just... Uh, shocking to like kind of everyone here like wow like i don't think this would happen if there were not the protest and i think the media coverage around it is really disingenuous of what actually the makeup and the meaning of this protest is which like you said it's about uh you know people just fed up with the kind of endless restrictions that we can't we can't live like that much longer like it's just uh, it's been two years now and there, there is a vaccine and people are choosing to get it or they're not, but we're it, like, this isn't something that we're going to eradicate. I, I, exactly. And, and the biggest rift I think is between the people who have fast forwarded to the end of the book and understand that, that it's not going away. So therefore we need to move on and people who are locked in the moment. But beyond that, the thing that pisses me off so much and, who knows, as far as you might be listening, some of you out there, you, you might be in a place where there aren't many restrictions. Where I live, there's some fucking restrictions. And I I hate being told that they're no big deal. They are a big deal. Yes. And I don't like being told that my opinions on this are somehow right wing. I don't care what wing they are. I don't want my son wearing a mask day after day in perpetuity as he grows up. I don't want it. I shouldn't want it. It's not a natural thing. And I don't like being told that it's nothing, whether it's damaging or anybody else. Every every baby study, like in the history of the world, talks about how important facial recognition is at an early age. And we've just thrown the whole world into like a shotgun experiment of saying, oh, nope, that doesn't matter. Yeah, it's it's frustrating. it's incredibly frustrating. Like you said, uh, you you know, you try to turn the um, the phrase, um, coin the phrase red zoning. And it's, that's exactly what's happening. Anyone who has these kind of anti-restrictions, anti-mandate uh, opinions. And I'll say, so one of my good friends, he's still like, actually, I still have a lot of good friends in Ottawa. One of them lives downtown. He walked around and he was shocked. He said, like, oh, the numbers are way more than they are reporting. 
uh, and it's way more diverse. And yeah, Trudeau called it a fringe minority. If they were a fringe minority, why aren't there any counter protests? Exactly, yeah. and, and you know it's it's interesting. So there's uh, two things. So my friend estimated like fifty thousand people, but it was probably more like ten, twenty thousand. Uh, I have other you know friends through him, or you know a group of friends who showed up to protest. One is Filipino Canadian, one is Indian Canadian. One of them actually works for the federal government. And there's ton, it's incredibly uh, diverse set of people there. They're like Sikhs, uh, you know, Indian Canadians. They are, you know, heavy in the trucking industry. So a lot of them came from BC and they're protesting, right? It's not like a, whatever, a white nationalist movement at the least. And they made up these lies of, you know, soup kitchens. They're going into soup kitchens, which is totally absurd because they have $10 million fundraised. And by any kind of video that you look on Twitter, uh, you know, there's they ha- they're giving away food, right? They're feeding the homeless. They're baking, um, you know, uh, pizza pies on the street, like outside the parliament, right? There's no shortage of food. This is this is like you know uh, one of these kind of lies that they're doing. And one of the other things they but, did. But, is by what, the way, the media might not be accomplishing what it thinks it's accomplishing when the message to the public is. These Nazis want to remove the restrictions on your life and let you get back to normal. <laughs> exactly, and, and it's crazy. So there's a um, there's a Terry Fox statue uh, right across from Parliament, and they're like, "This statue has been desecrated." And all they did was put a uh, you know mandate freedom sign on him, just like this card that they put put in his uh, arms and a flag on his shoulders and like a Canadian um you know hockey canada hat on and that was their form of desecration so so wait are you accusing the mainstream media (laughs) of misinformation because we've been told that misinformation is bad and must be stopped (laughs) at all costs exactly and what what's totally insane with this like 12 months earlier uh during the black lives matter they were uh tearing down all like you know queen victoria queen elizabeth statues they sawed off um Sir, our first prime minister's head who like, you know, it, it's just absurd, right? It, it was like, he wasn't a slave owner, but, uh, and there was the, the media, the contrast in how they were covering, you know, paint buckets dropped on these statues or just like total um, destruction of them versus like putting a sign and a flag on one is insane. And what, again, like, what is the reason for like the, the way that the media has like def- been like portraying, just everything in ter- in these like terms it's like very bizarre is it, is i mean it, like, my a desire my... for to for us to become like communist north america like with just centralized my authority? my theory is that they are at some level afraid of a preference cascade that is yes. the theory i've been operating under and to be fair to the people fearing a preference cascade Preference cascades can be quite destabilizing. You don't totally know what the end of them is going to look like because it's a bunch of people who have been kind of quietly going along with things, suddenly realizing that their numbers are larger than they had previously understood. And uh, all of a sudden, Erdogan is the president of Turkey and running it uh, Mm -hmm. in an authoritarian religious way. And all the people in Turkey who are cosmopolitan and open to Western ideas and secular uh, suddenly are completely disempowered, like overnight, you know. So I think at some level, and I'm not saying that it's uh, a realistic thing, thing for them to be totally afraid of. I think there is this. There is this strange kind of visceral fear 
of the prole and <laughs> and the prole is going to get some sort of uh, crazy idea and accrue some sort of crazy amount of power and so the prole must be paternalistically paced and led and that's that's my general theory of a lot of what's going on in the media right now and and i have two thoughts on this too i think one it's it's very easy to sensationalize this right to get attract attention uh, with these, you know, headlines, it's in, they're getting served up by them by you know the Trudeau government when he would say tweet like, uh, you know, these protests are, and he listed all kind of the woke trigger words, right, of anti-Semitic, uh, anti, you know, uh, Islamophobic, anti, you know, transphobic. You know, it was crazy, and that tweet got uh, apparently ratioed. Uh, to oblivion too, because it was, but they would report on this. And I think you mentioned something about this in your Twitter. I saw, uh, some, I forget what the, the prefix is, but it's a pseudo event where he says something and the media reports on it. And then, you know, it builds and therefore uh, it exists. Right. Yeah. But like that, that's the thing is most people. Uh, by the way, the term for that is a, a self, this... self licking ice cream cone is the good <laughs> for that one. <laughs> And I will say one thing about the Bruce Arthur impact of this too, and kind of the, so in Canada, uh, it's our media environment is very strange and weird because we're, like I said, we're in the shadow of uh, the biggest media market in the world, the US. So, you know, we're dealing, you know, uh, with major problems of trying to uh, make Canadian media a thing, right? Because mm. it's just impossible to compete with American media. Your budget's going to be 11 times bigger. And so there's uh, huge subsidies to Canadian media uh, companies. Like the Toronto Star, the paper that Bruce Arthur writes for was basically a dead paper, right? It was like the third biggest paper in Toronto. It was dead in like 2018, 2019 until Justin Trudeau bailed it out. They gave it huge sums. They were getting like $100,000 a day uh, during these bailouts. And uh, and one of the biggest media companies in Canada is a state-owned one called the CBC. It's supposed to be independent, but the opposition party basically comes out and campaigns about defunding the CBC. And so, you know, they have enormous bias. So it's our NPR. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It, it is. It's our NPR, but it's much worse because, you know, uh, the funding that uh, the CBC gets is about a hundred dollars per household uh, per year, right? So it's about what you'd pay for Netflix, and you know, not a lot of people watch the CBC, but they get huge. And the interesting thing about the Toronto Star, the progressive paper that uh, Bruce Arthur works for, they were complaining quite openly that like this is their basically competition for kind of progressive news. And, you know, they're getting huge subsidies and they weren't. They were basically dying. And so I think that fed into them getting, you know, a huge bailout. So uh, and uh, Justin made a joke about this at one of these galleys, like uh, that they gave the media's companies in Canada a $600 million bailout. So no wonder there's a liberal bias. Mm. Uh, but I think that's part of it. Of course, I, mean, I don't want to be conspiratorial about this, but that's just but certainly it, the fact remains with CBC. They are. <laughs> Uh, under threat if the kind of conservative government comes in because they run on a platform of defund the CBC. What I find so annoying, and this happens in our politics because I, I read the Arthur the feed and he's also talking about how these fringe freaks are going to be this massive force in Canadian politics for some time. And it just seems like his interpretation of the why is that you have these foolish people who are 
easily manipulated. There's no sense of, do, do you think that if they're going to be this huge force in Canadian politics for some time, whatever you're observing, whatever's happening, uh, you don't think that whatever you're into might be part of that uh, and, and might have fueled that in any kind of way? I mean, that's that's what's so frustrating to me. It's this lie. Uh, I do think it's a lie of that this is all happening in some sort of vacuum, that the only reason people are frustrated is because they're misled and sufferers of misinformation. There's such an absence of listening to yeah. people and their and, concerns. And I don't know if you guys talk about Joe Rogan or not, but this is what's happening with Joe Rogan too, right? Yeah. It's just like, it's the exact same thing where, you know, they're frustrated that people listen to Joe Rogan. So they must be idiots. They must be wrong. Uh, not Don't look at what Joe Rogan's saying or what he's doing. It's, you know, it's the people that are uh, moronic for listening yeah. to him. Yeah, no, it's the, yes, it's the Principal Skinner meme from The Simpsons that it's the, the, the children uh, <laughs> who are the ones who are wrong. That Yeah, it's just frustrating that they're so into knowing what the answers can't be, right? That whatever, they, they know what the answers are, they know what the answers can't be. There's no sense of, of self-reflection, of just, yeah, I, I personally, I'm not, I don't think I'm a very ideological person. I, I like to go with what works. I would have a totally different view of politics right now if things were going well in the Bay Area. Totally different. I believe that. I, I'm a pragmatist, oh, yeah. right? No, I'm, we're I'm a, we're both we're both in living in cities that have undergone precipitous four to five year declines yes exactly exactly and so it's intensely again i keep using that word frustrating that instead of that being an acknowledgement uh or there being an acknowledgement that that is informing some of why people are drifting away from the the orthodoxies that uh predominate in these cities uh it's just more digging in <laughs> digging in and, and denial and stigmatizing anybody who notices i mean they they made that movie don't look up about people who deny climate change uh don't look up you know the foolish people not looking up they should maybe make a movie called don't look down about homelessness in these cities <laughs> it's a r- remarkable to me how stigmatized it is just to notice that things are not going well. And so, you know, we, we might be able to, we're not going to solve the country or North America in a night, but it's, we're, it's we're the, we're part. the commissioners of North America. <laughs> and and <laughs> I live, I live in Chicago suburbs for a year and I went to San Francisco year after year. And I would notice every time I'd go, I'd see how bad, uh, you know, the city was declining, right? Like I remember I had to stay. It was one, time i was visiting for work it was they're all business trips and i had to stay at a hotel right next to the city hall right it was in the tenderloin and it was just like you know uh world war three outside it was absolutely insane well like blocks and blocks of you know heroin addicts and um you know tents uh it, it was just it was crazy and um you know chicago is is definitely a different beast but um yeah the denial is is just crazy it's absolutely it's well well, i'm glad we could all validate one another's sanity i want to take a quick question from zach and get out of here just because he's been waiting forever hopefully has not fallen asleep and then we all i I, i've got to write an article tonight i've got to finish an article tonight um okay 
Zach, our last caller of the evening. Zach, are you there? You've been very patient. I am. I am. I'll make it quick. Um, I was just going back to you guys' NBA talk there a little bit. And, uh, you know, the biggest difference – or what kind of turned me off to the NBA was um, with, this, with the super teams. I'm in Denver, so the small market. You, you, you Basically, when LeBron started that whole process, five years into it, you basically knew as a smaller market team – you're royally effed. I mean, you just mm. don't have you don't have a ch- chance of ever your team ever winning. I mean, we have Jokic here in Denver, who's amazing. But I mean, yeah, it gives hope to fat white guys like me that we could one day play in the NBA. But other than that, you know, he's not going to be a brand that gets marketed. Well, you're you're in a market. You're in a market where the chasm could not be bigger between interest in the football team versus the basketball team. Um, oh yeah. Who is more popular in Denver, the Avalanche or the Nuggets? It's the Nuggets, I would say. It's close, though. Yeah, it is. It is. It's close. It's definitely close. But the Nuggets, or with the Avalanche, we were spoiled because the first year they came to Denver, they won the the Stanley Cup. Yeah, that Joe Sackick, Peter Forsberg, Patrick Waugh team was legendary. Yeah, yeah. So, it was, I mean, they kind of had an immediate fan base from the go. So, I kind of feel like it was a little bit of – it's like being a Vegas Knight fan right now. Well, you've got – I mean, speaking of super teams and players leaving, at least you've got that weird marketing efficiency of when you draft these players from outside the country, for whatever reason, they tend to stick around in the local market. Oh, 100%. Um, the Ben Thompson theory, as it were. And obviously, I'm a Nuggets fan, so I want nothing more for them to win. But I also want them to win just to, like – Prove proof of concept that if you get lucky as hell and draft a well, that's what happened with the Bucks. The the Bucks proved that concept. Yeah, yeah, no, they did, they did. Um, And the Mavs too with Dirk. The um, I I guess Dallas a little bit of a bigger city, but it's like hardly some you know cosmopolitan destination. Uh, Sure, I think the Nuggets with Murray and Jokic. Jokic healthy could win. I think it's possible that they could win it all with 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 like and especially Porter too. Those three, if like for whatever reason Porter and Murray are both like healthy at the same time for enough time, it could happen. I think actually before Murray tore his ACL last year, they actually the right when they traded for Aaron Gordon, they were. I think Zach Lowe even mentioned he was ready to predict them to win the championship last year, but then Murray tore his ACL. So uh. they always have such weird problems in the postseason because the altitude advantage is lessened by teams being able to hunker down for a couple days. That's at least my theory that they're almost thrown off by not having as much of that. But um, yeah, okay. Well, this is a pro Nuggets podcast, I suppose. I'm rooting for you, Zach. You know why? <laughs> Sounds not? good. Well, there was other things I was going to chat about, but it's uh, it's getting late, so I'll let you guys go. And uh, yeah, appreciate you. Let me jump on. Of course, right. man. Anytime. Uh, had a great time talking, Ryan. Get some sleep, man. But fantastic <laughs> takes as always. I do not know how you absorb whatever that level of knowledge is on the machinations within CNN. And one day we'll we'll have to learn how the hell you know all that. Um, but I've just so been much. thinking about it a lot. Anyways, um, <laughs> I, I appreciate you having me on. We'll do it again soon. Sounds fantastic. See you, right. everybody. Bye.